It's hard to believe that Richard Nixon left office nearly 50 years ago. Some of us still see that image of a waving Nixon boarding the helicopter after resigning from office. Now the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum in Yorba Linda, California, has a new director. Tamara Martin joins me now. Ms. Martin, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here today. And we should point out that in joining the National Archives and Records Administration, you are also joining the federal government, as it were, from the California state government, where you were the archivist there. Tell us what attracted you to this particular position, because sounds like the archivist for California is a pretty big job. It was. It was a tremendous opportunity to serve as the California state archivist, but I am excited to be here at the Nixon Library as a part of the National Archives. I've loved history ever since I was a child. I grew up going to museums, and so the idea of having the opportunity to work for the National Archives is kind of like a dream come true. All right. Well, we're glad to have you. And tell us what happens at the library in terms of what an archivist would do now, because I would think everything connected to the Nixon administration and the Nixon really an amazingly long political life would be all gathered in there already. So we have a wonderful collection here. Uh, There's approximately 46 million pages of documents, 3,700 hours of recorded presidential conversations, which are also known as the White House tapes. Yes, the infamous Dictabelt tapes, right? That's correct, yes. And they're all in the process or have already been digitized. So that's quite exciting for broader public access. We also have still photographs here. We have several hundred thousand of those, as well as additional audio recordings and over 42,000 state and public gifts. And so our archival team here, they work directly with the records to process and provide access to them. And then they also assist our in person and our virtual researchers here as well. Do new things ever turn up related that belong in the Nixon Library and come to you? There are at times some things that do come in as uh, perhaps private donations, so people who might have things relating to President Nixon or um, perhaps that are former administration officials who have things to add to the collection. But for the most part, most of the objects are already here, part of the collection. Sure. And what happens day to day then? Uh, what do you do as as director? There's a lot of visitors that come too every year. So each year we have thousands of visitors who come here. Uh, we have a nine acre campus here that we share with the Richard Nixon Foundation. And so if you were to come to our beautiful library, you would come into the lobby and you have a chance to tour the museum, which includes our permanent gallery, which showcases and provides information about the life of Richard Nixon as well as our temporary exhibit gallery, which currently has an exhibit called Captured Shot Down in Vietnam, which focuses on the stories of brave Americans who endured the harsh realities of being a prisoner of war during Vietnam. We also have the birthplace here, so where Richard Nixon was born that you can visit, as well as the Marine One helicopter that he used on his final day in office. Um, So day to day, we welcome guests here and invite them to learn more about our 37th president. We also work closely with other presidential libraries, as well as other universities and colleges and educational institutions to provide programming and provide broader access to the collection for the general public. I was going to say there's a couple of presidential libraries in California. There's the Ronald Reagan, but then the rest of them are all over the country. Talk about how they interact, the various museums, and what kinds of practices you share. There are 15 presidential libraries across the United States, and so we work together collaboratively on different initiatives 
throughout the National Archives, such as our Civics for All of Us initiative, which is educational uh, materials provided for K through 12 students, as well as adult learners about civic education and how that relates to the records of the National Archives. We also collaborate on things that our presidents might have both worked on or that might have occurred around the same time period that our presidents were in office. And then I would say that the presidential libraries are also a wonderful network of collaboration between the different teams. So you have a a wide net of resources to be able to rely upon if you have questions. We're speaking with Tamara Martin. She is the newly appointed director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. That's part of the National Archives and Records Administration. And just personally, you said you have an interest in history. What have you learned perhaps about Richard Nixon that you might not have known when you got there and your general reaction to what you found out about old Dick Nixon? So I see every day as an opportunity to learn and grow. And so it was really important to me when I started here that I was able to learn as much as I could about President Nixon as quickly as I could. So to help with that, I've been doing a lot of reading. I read a book about President Nixon every other week or so. Over the summer, I've read nine different books, including President Nixon's Six Crises and Julie Eisenhower's Pat Nixon, The Untold Story. And so many people do know that President Nixon opened relations with China. He ended U.S. involvement in Vietnam. There was the Apollo 11 moon landing and the space program and, of course, Watergate. But many people may not know, and it was new information for me, but I was interested to learn that he was also involved with creating the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970, the Clean Water Act in 1972. He also worked on Title IX Education Amendments of 1972 and the All-Volunteer force in 1973. He was also involved in the desegregation of Southern schools. He ended the draft. He worked on the war on cancer and was president during the 26th Amendment, which was passed in 1971 that lowered the voting age to 18. So it's quite an extensive legacy and a lot of different things that he worked on across all different areas that really have a a tremendous impact on things that we do today. Yes, it was a period of amazing ferment. I had a draft number when it ended. So I recall, oh, thank you, President Nixon, or the Congress. I mean, the whole thing changed so dramatically. We still, in some ways, haven't figured out the best way to manage an all-volunteer force. And we have an amazing force as it is. Do you get visitors or queries from the remaining members of the Nixon dynasty, the family? So we we do work very closely with our foundation who works very closely with the family. And it's a tremendous honor to be able to work with them and to have them involved. It's been a great thing. And It's said that at the wedding of his daughter, Richard Nixon introduced himself to a guest as General Eisenhower's grandson's father-in-law. So he did have that (laughs) self-deprecating side to himself. I guess a final question is, you mentioned you read a book almost every other week about Richard Nixon. You've read nine so far. What is the interest uh, from scholars that you get? Are there still body of scholars that come out there and maybe want to see some of the original documents, some of the obscure letters and so forth that are still doing? I mean, it's like Lincoln. There's a new book on Lincoln every year. I think there's more books on Lincoln than just about anybody. But what about Nixon? So we do have a, a fairly busy research room. We have scholars that come from all over the world to do research with us. And we work very hard to process records and open them as quickly as possible for the public to view. Recently, we opened two new collections that focused on White House advance files, as well as the office files of Donald Rumsfeld. And recently, we also had 112 boxes of previously classified materials that opened up that are now available for research that cover a whole host of foreign and domestic policy related items. So as things become available, there are always new things to research and learn. So there's always 
information available for authors or scholars or visitors to come and, and learn things they might not have known before. Yeah, as the declassification schedules come around, then you get more of these records coming in. And they're all paper, too, aren't they? I mean, there's no there were computers back in nineteen late 1960s and 1970s, but I doubt there was much computerization of any White House records at that time. Our recent releases have been paper. Um, the uh, other types of formats we do have are the audiovisual, so the photographs and the video and the audio recordings, but there were not electronic records like we see today. Well, you've got a fascinating job. Tamara Martin is director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum, part of the National Archives and Records Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity, and I hope you have a great day. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Jane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra- trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed, and now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years I had compartmentalized a part of me and I had hidden things and I had not been my full self at work and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader 
than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, you already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. H- how does being first How did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own uh, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, while it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It's really great and and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results: is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back? And tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career. 
when I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, 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 I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. that You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence. Because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. 
um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, they see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Poland, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Poland always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcast.